Hello from Austin and welcome to, well, the first episode in quite a while. We had to look it up. Turns out this is episode 210 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday night, October 5th, 2021. There's playoff baseball on. I'm Bobby Chesney. The Red Sox are winning for the moment. I'm Steve Vladek. And apparently, Bobby, I have been spending most of the time between our last episode and this one trying to intimidate the Supreme Court. You know, I, you know, you are a very intimidating fellow. Um, I'm so intimidating. In what way have you? In what way have you been daring to intimidate the Supreme Court? So there was this, uh, there was this back-to-back thing last week where Wednesday the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on the shadow docket at which I was one of the witnesses. You, and you weren't just a witness; you were meme. I was, I was, I was, I was you a witness. Fully who, memefied. Yes, the witness who became a meme. Um, but <laughs> well, it, wait, show title. Writing that down. <laughs> the witness who became a meme. Oh yeah, um, that's. <laughs> but the, then Thursday, as if that. Was, so anyway, so so several of the Republican senators, including both of the senators from our fair state, accused Democratic critics of the court of sort of making noise about the shadow docket in a transparent effort to intimidate the justices. And then um, Justice Alito, in a speech at Notre Dame Law School on Thursday, in which among other things he called me out by name. Um, made a similar charge about those who have been uh, using the term shadow docket to imply that there are some sinister cabal and that our real goal is to intimidate the court and to undermine its legitimacy. <laughs> Dude, so, so much to say about this. So first of all, I assume, based, notwithstanding the extra work that's probably generated for you, I assume you're thrilled for, look, I mean, your work has an impact, right? And what better evidence could there possibly be? Second, are you considering a rebrand of the shadow docket into something uh, or the banana docket. a rebrand? What are the alternative names for the shadow docket? I think of the banana docket. The banana docket. Oh, that's good. Um, so, that, so, so I actually am. So I'm giving, I was invited shortly after Justice Alito's speech at Notre Dame um, the head of the Notre Dame ACS chapter invited me to give a talk on, quote, whatever topic I wanted, unquote. Um, so I'm giving a talk via Zoom at, no- well, at Notre Dame on Friday um, titled, Clearing Up Some Misconceptions About the Supreme Court Shadow Docket and Its Critics. It sounds like it's time to say, let's get ready to <laughs> rumble. No, I don't. I, I don't. I, but my goal is not to be confrontational. Actually, my goal That's is good. to my goal is to actually bring receipts. All right. I think I think uh, taking it out of the plane of invective and rhetoric yes. and just saying, yes. look, here's the claim. Yes. Here's the here's data. The, here's the evidence. Here's why this is important. Judge for yourself. Yep. Oh, fascinating. Um, who to thank so, it? Yeah, so so folks who are interested, um, I'll have I'll have that. It will be live on YouTube and also it'll be recorded, so folks will be able to to watch if they want. That this, if if the uh, promo is effective enough, this may end up being one of the more watched, uh, just sort of like law school guest speaker things by a professor. I don't know. I think a hot ticket. Alito's speech, I think, probably was more watched, but. Um, I'll just say this, Bobby. You know me. I'm not one to usually do my slides way in advance. Like I'm usually like, you know, <laughs> my slides are usually like right before class. Insert your cat tapping on keyboard at high exactly. speed. Exactly. Um, and let's just say that my slides for Friday's presentation have been done since Sunday. Okay, so you're you're kind of fired up about this. A little bit. I like I like the uh, the idea that like when when us academics get riled up, like the way we sort of you know the way we sort of we PowerPoint is PowerPoint pre prep. <laughs> So like, I, I do. I, I mean, I do want to answer your question, though. I mean, I, I it's funny. I'm um, 
like a couple folks asked me like you know are you are you horrified that like you've been singled out and i'm like no horrified. No. <laughs> um, I, I do think it's kind of strange and maybe even in some respects a little bit clumsy how the sort of pushback has been um, orchestrated here. But, you know, whatever. I mean, I want my, as you know, you know, my goal is not to convince people that I'm right. My goal is to raise a level of debate and help people make their own decisions. And so if, if nothing else, Justice Alito making a big public to-do about this and giving me the opportunity to respond you know, in the Notre Dame event this Friday, I think serves both of those purposes. Absolutely. Look, what's happening here is is what we all want, which is what, whatever about the layers of, of characterization, maybe take away some of the, the fun of it. But at the end of the day, every academic's got to be excited yeah. when you take a position and it begins to generate real national dialogue. That's, yeah. You've done that with Shadow Docket unquestionably. Yay. Yeah. Lucky, lucky you, because you have nothing else <laughs> to spend your time on. Um, Okay. Well, I will say that the my, the the um my my fantastic publisher um Emma Berry um wanted to know if Justice Alito might blurb the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's here's a question: Can you not? Um, I believe I've seen blurbs that are that are like sort just of, quotes. Yeah, there are quotes where it's yeah. like this. You know, this guy's a hack. Don't read his book. And it's like if it's the right person saying it, that can be a great blurb. <laughs> Fortunately, in my case, if I, ever, if I ever, you know, get my book finished, uh, there's plenty of people who'd be willing to supply that particular quote, no doubt. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not, sure I've, I'm not Bobby. I'm not sure I've ever heard the word "hack" within about a light year of you in the same in the same in the same real estate. Um, thank you. That's kind. It, 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 I get it all the time. <laughs> it's it's not warranted uh, in your case. I, I think I, I definitely earn it at least when it comes to playing guitar, and where it's literally and figuratively true. <laughs> uh, by the way, I was so I was so happy. One of our students uh, saw me the other day and said, "I heard you say on this show back when you guys used to put the show out. Um, I heard you say on the show that you've been working on that uh, Velvet Revolver solo that Slash does in Slither. How's that coming along?" I was like, "Oh my god, how long has it been? I've I've learned it and played it since then." <laughs> Yeah, we, we joked last time about this becoming a monthly podcast, but I'm afraid that I'm afraid that that we have not lived up to our end of that bargain. I think but we just beat the one month mark. Barely. The, the good news, the good news is that we owe nobody a refund. Well, that's true. You are getting your money's worth, everybody. That's for sure. Um, so, what do we bring into the table tonight? We've got the DC Circuit's oral argument in the Al Gila case. So, we have some good old fashioned bread and butter Guantanamo oriented uh, military detention oriented. Uh, Case develop case law development related to habeas and, and that's just bread and butter for us. We're super excited to talk about that. Um, there's been this in, in, there was an incredible uh, story Zach Dorfman and others in in a Yahoo News story about uh, what the CIA may or may not have been planning or at least considering doing in relation to Julian Assange and mm-hmm. and uh, and more broadly as to WikiLeaks. Um, some really complicated in the weeds stuff. We're getting a glimpse behind the curtain here. Super interesting, getting lots of attention. Um, you've got some pretty big national security division developments. We can check in on our roundup there. Uh, what else? We've got uh, we've got moral arguments. We've got Abu Zubeda coming up tomorrow. Um, tomorrow, right, the Supreme Court's going to hear oral argument in U.S. versus Abu Zubeda tomorrow. I'm actually I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of talk about it briefly, but actually suggest that we do a, we actually plan for a full bore preview of Fazaga because I actually think Fazaga is a even broader implications case for our field. Um, and and when, when's Fazaga getting argued? 
Fazaga is November. Okay. Um, so I think Fazaga is, let me see if I can find the exact date, but Fazaga is not this month. It's next month. Um, the argument date there is November 8th. So we will, dear listeners, we will, we will plan to do a full-scale preview of Fazaga because that's a fascinating case about the intersection of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the state secrets privilege, and basically classified information in, in national security litigation writ large. Oof. Have a whole course on that. Seriously, um, did that? So that's a quartet of things. Am I missing yeah. anything else? Any, any? Of, you've got a million cases, or any of them? <laughs> anything happening there? So we're getting close to. La- oh, you know what? We haven't. Um, so Larrabee, the oral argument in the DC Circuit on court martial jurisdiction over retired service members, yeah. coming up on October twenty second. I think since last we recorded, I learned the composition of the panel. Okay. Um, the panel. I don't think Bobby, you know this yet, so I'll be fascinated to see your facial expression, which I will not tell people as I tell <laughs> you who the panel is. So uh, the panel is judges Tatel, Rao, and Walker. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't even hide it. <laughs> Sorry, Good man. Poker face there, buddy. Feel bad for you. Although I will say, I mean, if it, it, it's not obvious that this case has to cut ideologically in no, certain ways. No, no, I've but... never, I've never, I've never, I mean, listen, I mean, the, we won in the district court before Judge Leon, um, who yeah. no one's going to accuse of being like a bleeding heart liberal. So, you know, listen, it's a, it's a panel of smart judges. I'm excited to. No, that's going to make, for, I actually time. think that'll be really fun. Look, we love all the judges, all y'all judges. We love Equally. you. Yep. Um, even, but, even you, Justice Alito. Uh, maybe especially, but maybe especially. Um, I think that uh, that particular panel, that's a bunch of, I actually think that's a, an awesome lineup because that's a bunch of yes, super smart people, but also really interestingly different. Yes. And all, all I think we'll have lots of great questions for you. <laughs> it, so it'll be really it, fun it, to watch you. It, it, it's not going to be a quiet bench. I'll put it that way. So this is great fun because you're constantly in front of the judges and I never am. Nobody retains me to squat. <laughs> and that it makes it so much easier to do this show. Yes, um, the, the thousands of dollars I am not making representing Mr. Larrabee. <laughs> oh, man. You, you've got to get an agent. You have an agent because you have a book. Yeah, but she's not that kind of agent. <laughs> it's time to expand the portfolio. I need, I need Javi Baez money. <laughs> well, if you can supply that kind of uh, slugging percentage. Actually, I don't know. Was his LPS real high? I know he had a lot of homers. His uh, numbers by the time by the end of the season, his numbers post acquisition were quite good. I yeah, mean, he, had he, a, he had a good middle yeah, and yes. second half. The, yes, the first yes. half was mm. yes. Okay, um, let's jump in. Which which one do you want to start with first? And obviously, obviously, when we get to frivolity, friends, no doubt we're going to check in with the playoffs. Um, we can talk a little bit about some other things. What we've been reading, what we're recommending, what we might soon be watching. Reading. Right, reading—that's something we do. Hey, by the way, have you, have you watched the trailer for House of Dragons? The I, Game I of have. Thrones prequel. I have. All right, we'll talk about that later. Then, um, what have you, you watched the trailer? For, have you watched the trailer for No Time to Die? I, I have, indeed. I'm excited I, for that. It comes out Friday. Maybe, maybe we should. Yeah, okay. We're going to, have to figure out if we can if we can time it right. Let's see it so we can review it properly. I would like that. Yeah, that's Ooh, not bad. Bobby Steve Knight at the movies. Wait, should we should we play hooky? I mean, and the dean doesn't I, you know, listen to this podcast, does he? Well, you're the associate dean, so I just I just defer yeah, to you on all that, things. That's why I asked about the dean. <laughs> <laughs> I think if Ward listened to this podcast, he'd probably we we both might be assigned other responsibilities for it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, oh, uh, you know, in fairness, so Ward and our our our, uh, our beloved uh, former comms director Chris Roberts, who's now darn it UCLA's comms Boo. person, both were huge proponents of getting us to do this originally. I know, and I know we, they were. We might have ended up doing it, 
anyways, but I think actually they kind of deserve credit for pushing us across the threshold to do it. So way to go, guys. It's your credit, fault. Credit, credit or blame. I was going to say or blame because <laughs> here I am instead of watching the Red Sox and the Yankees and like, you know, getting other work done, you know, right. here, here, we, here we are for episode 277. <laughs> Whatever we it should, is. We should be at 277. We really should we've be. gotten so lackadaisical about this. Folks, you know, if, if I was like, why are you doing this so infrequently now? It's just hard. This is a busy semester. We are so busy. We're so busy. We're just doing the best we can. I mean, Bob, Bobby and I, every time we see, like the rare times we actually pass each other at school, we're like, we're, we're sort of quietly having a who's busier competition with each other. <laughs> and, and we both lose. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a tie for last place. Yes. All right, so let's jump in and get to the substance here. Why don't we talk first about uh, the oral argument in Alhila? Yes. Um, so to remind so, folks, right, this is yeah. this is the this is a an old school Guantanamo habeas case, straight habeas, um, where the three judge panel, speaking of Judge Rao, um, had held last summer that the Guantanamo detainees are categorically unprotected by the due process clause. Um, there was some other important stuff in the panel decision about uh, sub- substantial support as a basis for detention, but the D.C. Circuit agreed to go on bonk only to revisit the question of whether the due process clause applies to the detainees, and if so, whether it's satisfied by what Mr. Alhila has received in this case. Um, and that's so, part so, of what makes the yeah. oral argument so funny, because I feel like like that was like definitely not all they talked about. There was such an emphasis on everything else. And you get you get an on bonk going. Yes, There's a lot of people fighting for microphone time. That's eleven judges, and those are eleven judges who have some thoughts. Yeah, these these are not sh- shrinking violets, that's for sure. Um, plus, so- I mean, plus, plus, just, I mean, right, because Judge Randolph was on the panel, um, right? Judge Randolph, but so the so not he, every yeah, circuit, so the extra judge, Randolph. right? So not every circuit does it the same way, but Judge Randolph, because he was on the panel, he was allowed to and chose to participate in the on banc rehearing. Right, whereas his, I guess, his senior status otherwise would have precluded him. Correct. And meanwhile, but, Judge Griffith, who was the third judge on the panel, has since retired. So right. complicated. So what, an important development. So his his original habeas petition, I think, dates back to 2005. True. And uh, the substantive ruling, I, I forget which, uh, I think it was in front of Judge Lamberth. So he-, he I think that's right. Although you know, I, 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 I honestly, I, it's sure. Lamberth or Friedman. Lamberth sounds right. Hookham, Judge Lamberth, UT Law. Um but anyways, uh, so in the intervening period, which has been quite a while, and he's been he's been Not detained. I mean, Lambert, Lambert's ruling wasn't that long ago. Yeah, no, but no. What I'm getting at is he has since, in relatively recently, been cleared yes. for transfer on, by PRB. Yeah, the periodic review board PRB process. So I think that was after the panel decision. No, it was. And and so you've got the you've got a new administration. Uh, the PRBs were, in theory, operating at least for the most part during the Trump administration, but basically were like on life support. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Can I say? I mean, let, let's remind folks just because both it's been a while and not everyone has memorized all the acronyms, right? So one of the things that the Obama administration started was these internal administrative review boards called periodic review boards, and the PRBs were designed to take the existing detainee population and identify those who met the administration's criteria for transfer to a third-party country or, or to their home country if, there were, if that was ever possible. Um, and the central criteria, Bobby, for the PRB, as you know, was whether the, administ- whether the government could show that the detainee still was reasonably likely to pose a threat 
right, to the security of the United States if they were released. This was not about the legality of their detention. It was Should simply we exercise about the policy discretion, correct. despite still claiming the legal basis to detain, like the way you might grant parole to somebody in a parole system. Yep. In effect, um, the only thing I would amend is the Bush administration had a, a analogous process. They had the administrative yep. review boards, yep. the ARBs. Um, and that's actually how a substantial number of people who left in the, in the busier earlier years, the pathway through which they left was a determination by the annual review process of the ARB that that person could safely be released, notwithstanding the government still claiming they were in theory detainable. Yep. Um, and so, so the pieces you've got at this point to keep track of procedurally are the, the combatant staffs review tribunal or CSERT process that's sort of the internal executive branch initial determination someone's detainable. You know, since there's been no new long-term detainees at Gitmo for like forever, um, that all seems like ancient history. But for everyone who is there, there was at one point that determination. And that's what that is in effect what the habeas process is then challenging is is the accuracy of that determination in a basically de novo uh, fact-finding oriented process that's asking whether the person's lawfully detainable under uh, after 2011 under the terms of detention authority Congress specified in the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2012, which remains the detention law of the land. And it codified the executive branch's uh, litigating positions in effect at that time. And then the, the action apart from habeas for people who lose in habeas for people who have challenged their detainability and the courts have said, well, no, we, we think the government's met its burden, you're detainable. The pathway out is the periodic review board. That's the one that can say, well, notwithstanding that, we're going to go ahead and say it's safe to release them. And this kind of this hangs over this hangs over the Alhila oral argument in an important way because one of the questions the the, the court and the, the lawyers arguing the case both of whom did a very fine job with a very difficult, complex set of questions. Um, one of the issues is, will it matter if the court were to say that the due process clause does apply to Guantanamo detainees? And if that were the case, would it change anything in practical terms? And it was clear that at least some of the judges are wondering whether there's anything at stake here. That was something explicitly discussed in the argument. And, and this was, I mean, this was Judge Griffith's concurrence, right? In the For the panel, Griffith concurred in the judgment, but he would have said, we don't need to reach the due process question because we can say, even if it applies, it's satisfied. Right here. Right, exactly. So, uh, so a constitutional avoidance says, don't decide it because it won't matter here. Therefore, move along. Um, the, uh, a couple of arguments were made as to why it would matter. So what would be different given that the Biden administration is now in the position of trying to figure out diplomatically, where can you send this guy? Bearing in mind, he cannot, as a matter of statute, Congress forbids transfers to Yemen, right? So, or at least, or, at least, or is that a matter of policy, Steve? I, I'm forgetting now, which it is. I th- I th- so I, I think at the moment, it's a, I think at the moment it's policy. Okay. Okay. So there is that complication. Uh, it's been a problem going back to the Obama administration. Right. Transfers to Yemen because of the lack of, of the security situation. There. Yeah. The security situation in Yemen is such that if there need to be security guarantees as part of the PRB determination, there often are these requirements of some security guarantees. So people who hail from Yemen, as we've noted on this show many times, have been completely out of luck, even when approved for transfer in principle, right. uh, in, unless you can find a third country. 
And uh, and, and counsel for Alhila did mention that at least the family is claiming that there are countries in the area interested in, in taking him on. And that may prove to be the case, but the government's position is it's way too soon to just assume that the government isn't going to deliver and that the government is in fact in good faith trying to deliver. And there were overtones of, hey, we're not the Trump administration. We're really trying to do this. <laughs> um, and so it was a tough spot for Alhila to argue. So what would really be different? So if you if you don't look back to the underlying enemy combatant detainability determination and you only look to the What's your remedy, given that the PRB has already approved you and the Biden administration seems on its face to genuinely be interested? Uh, and the argument Alhila made was that, first of all, it'll just it'll be it, it'll be atmospherically more important if a court has added its weight behind the PRB saying, yes, indeed, you must you must, in fact, be transferred. And, and the idea is that somehow, some way that kind of generates accountability that will prevent any shenanigans or just lack of due attention to this. Um, and there was pushback from some of the other judges, including Judge Randolph, basically saying <laughs> like, well, you know, th- this is a path we've den- been down before. And when it comes to the diplomatic negotiations that are associated with detainee transfers, there's a real limit to how much probing the court's going to be able to do. Um, and that, of course, led to a counter argument that that might be so in sort of limited terms, but in extremists, there's got to be outer boundaries where the courts, it would matter if the courts uh, engaged and there are things they could inquire about. But but gradually the oral argument shifted focus and, and it became very focused at one point on what about the potential relevance for due process as to the determination that he was detainable in the first instance? Right. So there are two, there are two yeah. I mean, there are two different due process questions here, right? I mean, or even three. I mean, there's the... There's what we think of as Bobby the obvious due process question, which is how much process was he entitled to in challenging his detention? Yeah, right. So was the habeas were the bells and whistles of habeas process good enough to count as due process? Right. But then there's the sort of more substantive, I hate that term, due process piece of the analysis, which Uh is does the due process clause impose limits on either the substantive scope or the temporal duration of the government's detention authority? So in a way, the the first one is an attack on the case management order and other procedural features that the courts right. have built up. The second one- of the evidence as a standard, hearsay, all that stuff. Yeah. And then the second one is really sort of a, it's engrafting limitations on what the NDAA fiscal year 2012 yep. authorizes. Yep. Okay. So- um, But can, can, now, now, yeah. now can, can we sort of, you know, flip into brass tacks for a second, right? I mean, like, so the, the panel says no due process at all, right? And it seems like it would be such a colossal waste- if the DC circuit goes on bonk to say we didn't need to decide that question, right? Like, like it's you know, it, yes, Judge like Griffin mooted by the PRB determination. Well, or or they say any due process is satisfied, right? Like, I mean, if, like right. a right. Yeah. If if you get an on bonk decision that says we do not decide whether the due process clause applies, we simply hold that even if it does, it was satisfied here. Like. How does that move the ball forward? Well, and, this and would I be think, another example of the DC Circuit not moving the ball forward. Right, when and, and, the and, and this is the conversation I want to have, which is like, let's look back at the last six years of litigation, seven years of litigation in the DC Circuit, right? The DC Circuit took the better part of four and a half years to move the ball exactly nowhere <laughs> on the question of whether the commissions can try non-international war crimes, right? right. Leading to the, the famously fractured 2016 on bonk decision in Al-Balul 4, um, right? They dump in Al-Nashiri 2 the question of whether 
um, military commission defendants can raise pretrial attacks on the jurisdiction of the military commissions, right? In Al-Nashiri 3, they just wipe away three and a half years of, or three years of pretrial proceedings without actually reaching any of the underlying substantive questions in Al-Nashiri's case. Like, Bobby, at some point, they need to decide something. I agree. Like, it, we need to know what the answers to these things are. So and the commissions say, especially, like the commit, like the military commissions especially, need to know if like they're bound by the due process clause. And, or and not. so this comes up in the oral argument too, and several of the judges emphasize that that issue getting resolved here would have significant implications over there, and that put the government counsel uh, uh, in a in tricky a bit of a spot. sticky wicket. Yes, well, very much because of course the natural the, the right answer from government counsel is, hey, you know, just rule for this case, but how can you? Um, so here, here, let me put cards on the table. You'll not be surprised to hear me say that I think that the process, if the due process clause applies, the process that is due is satisfied by what these procedures are, what they developed over time. And I'm not saying as a prediction of what the court will say. They very well might, they very well might say that certain aspects, and there was an endless nuanced discussion in particular about the role of ex parte and camera uh, mm -hmm. presentations to the court about uh, hearsay declarants in effect and, and what's the credibility determination based on. You can imagine them saying that that actually is a feature of the habeas jurisprudence that the court is going to declare falls short of due process. But my basic view of this is what the, what the DC circuit and the district courts have been doing for a full decade now is doing their level best to identify because the constitutional requirement of habeas is there to identify what is a uh, fair process here. And, and I don't believe, I can, I can very much believe someone saying that I think they've got that wrong. They should have by their own standard gone higher all along, but you'll never convince me that the, the loose wording, to put it charitably, of these broad principles the existence of the habeas right protected by the suspension clause and the existence of the general terms of the due process clause dictate a two-tiered system where habeas is satisfied in this setting by level seven, but due process actually requires level eight. I, they, they, they should, they're the same. In my opinion. I, so I, I'd feel better about that, Bobby, if you didn't have some DC circuit judges on record as saying the opposite. Right. Yeah, well, like, I disagree with them. Right. So. Right. Like so. So right. In Esmail, right. Silberman says that the reason why Hamdi, right, articulate, you know, rejects um, some evidence as a procedural burden was because I think the quote is, of course, that case involved due process. <laughs> right, right. Right. And that's and, and so there I disagree with the judges who've taken that line. If if habeas is required, if habeas is constitutionally required, then the process of figuring out what it requires is, uh, in my mind, indistinguishable from what a due process Matthews v. Eldridge style assessment of what's fair in the circumstances. I just don't see any constitutional basis for saying like, oh, well, actually, the one allows hearsay declarant credibility to be determined by ex parte evidence, uh, but not the other. But anyways, uh, so if they determine that, if they agree with that, and they think that there's no actual gain uh, procedurally for uh, Ahila, if due process applies, is it is it kosher, Steve, for them to say, look, so we're not going to actually say anything's wrong here, but we're going to go ahead and decide the merits of the constitutional question. Like constitutional avoidance isn't a law of physics. Right. You choose it's not, not jurisdictional. And so I think it's okay. And I think normally you shouldn't do it, but I think there's a pretty good argument that you articulated a moment ago about how two decades into this, 
we probably need to be a little bit more aggressive with the issues they're willing to reach when they're otherwise presented in a case or controversy before them. Especially because they themselves are responsible for closing that door on the military commission side. And so unless they want to wait for the first plenary appeal right, of a military commission conviction to reach the due process question in that forum, like here's actually a perfect opportunity, even for judges who are not necessarily sympathetic to Al-Hila on the merits, to lay down a marker that's going to affect the commissions. So I, I have to digress for a second to note that we've made uh, National Security Law podcast history by Steve carrying around the computer as he's as he went and did something. I think he went to the fridge, did you, or the pantry? Had, Roxy was barking because she was out of food, so I had to put more food you in her f- bowl. So you fed the dog while, we were, while you were delivering those points. I am impressed. Well, you know, when when you're trying to intimidate the Supreme Court, you got to multitask. Okay, so um, so this is one big tangled set of issues. Should they yeah. they they hardly talked about the merits of whether or not the due process clause should be understood to apply there. There was a kind of, I would say, predictable exchange uh, with Judge Randolph about um, where does the Eisentrager Boumediene uh, exchange cash out here? And what about Verdugo or Quidez? Um, But I think, I think that if it gets- Bobby, that- make, make 2007 great again. <laughs> so I, I, I know it. I see what you did there. Uh, I think probably the en banc is is going to go the other way on that if they get to this point. They're they're going to feel that this is distinguishable on the grounds that Alhila's counsel offered, which was that Boumedian said, you know, for all I forget what the phrase Kennedy used was, but it was sort of it's under the constant jurisdiction for all intents and purposes. It's a special place, and therefore you can keep the Verdugo Urquidez rule. That is that non-U.S. persons outside the United States normally aren't aren't bearers of constitutional rights protections, even when U.S. personnel are interacting with them outside the United States, you could keep that without even having to narrow it to the Fourth Amendment context. You could keep that rule and simply treat Gitmo as different, which is basically what happened with with suspension clause jurisprudence. They can can and probably will say the same thing here if they decide they need to do it. Um, So as I said earlier, I think that the place they'll focus on why it's necessary and relevant to get to the constitutional question probably is this back and forth about whether some of the features that the courts have accepted from from just a habeas position aren't acceptable from a due process position. But there was at least one, maybe two of the judges who sounded interested in a proposition that I really wish had been ventilated much more uh, carefully than it was. And that's this idea that because the PRB made a determination that it's no longer in the security interest of the United States to have to hold him ourselves, that that might mean that the detention authority itself has evaporated. Now, counsel for Al-Hila, I don't, I don't blame for making that argument. I expect counsel to make that argument. But I didn't hear a clear articulation. I heard a little reference to, but not a clear articulation to the incredibly important difference that you and I outlined a moment ago. What are the grounds for detention? Congress has specified in statute, so it's not just some interpretation of the AUMF by the executive branch or, or executive branch interpretation blessed by the courts, but it's the statutory law of the land that there are categories of detainability that are associated with membership in Al-Qaeda um, in associated forces or substantial support. And, and unless one has got an argument about why, and, and I recognize that due process could be the basis for the argument, but unless one makes the argument that the statute is unconstitutional in that respect, 
and I get I gather the briefing probably does make this argument, but the oral argument really didn't. Um, bringing into it that the PRB made a determination about the security permissibility of a transfer as a matter of policy, yeah. and suggesting that that actually extinguishes the underlying detainability of the person, uh, despite the original determination surviving habeas review. Uh, I think that's actually not a helpful analysis, and it's if, if they're going to go there, man, I, I really hope they I hope they really dig into that issue in a more rigorous way. Yeah, I, I think the PRB might also just be Bobby optical. Like here's someone who the government says is no longer like you know, I don't know. I the other, I mean, the other complication, of course, is that you know all, everything that went down in Afghanistan has happened since the DC Circuit agreed to rehear this case on Bonk, right? President Biden going to the UN and saying, for the first time in twenty years, we are no longer at war. Like, <laughs> yeah, and 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 clearly, you know, Obama did the same thing, right? But he, he didn't say we are no longer at war. He came awfully close in some context, and in both yeah. cases, there is no question. That the actual official position in the United States right. is that it's that's contrary. an incomplete sentence. Yes. We are no longer at war with the Taliban in Afghanistan. <laughs> and the president has political reasons that I understand for not saying the sentence that way. Uh, that's absolutely the Biden administration's position and that there continues to be an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda and, and well, Islamic State and perhaps other associated forces. Color me someone who thinks that, you know, courts should be a little bit more skeptical of the government getting to talk out of both sides of its mouth like that. So predictions on where this is going to yeah, look, they should be they should be called to account for trying to have credit for for ending wars when that's absolutely not what they're actually doing. They're they're ending particular uh, dimensions of a broad and complex armed conflict claim that they continue to otherwise defend. Um, what do you think is going to happen here? So I think there are probably four votes, perhaps even as many as five. For the proposition that the due process clause does not apply, um, and then I think that we're going to get some sort of division among the remaining six or seven judges over some of whom want to hold that it does apply, and some of whom want to hold that whether or not it applies, it's satisfied, and that you know there, and that you'll get some kind of like potentially crossover majorities where. Yeah. Yeah. Where, you know, the the left, the, the sort of the more lefty judges produce a majority for the proposition that um, we'll assume it. You see where I'm going, right? That yeah, like, yeah. you know. I, I, so in short, you and I are going to have to add it all up, break yeah. it all down and say, here's where there's majority. But it'll be so splintered that it'll have at least the potential to go up to the next level. And I think the administration. So, so I, I don't think so. So, so I, I don't think there will be six votes for the proposition that the due process. I think that, Bobby, the, the million-dollar question is, are there six votes? Because there are 11 judges, right? So six is a majority. Are there six votes for the proposition that the due process clause applies, right? Or is it going to be something short of six and then that you get the sort of the rest of the majority from those who assume it applies without deciding as much? It seems to me that the administration has ample reason to try to get him transferred. Yes, before and, before this gets decided, and that there's not nearly enough certainty about them getting something better or even something they really want to see out of this because of the spillover implications you identified earlier. So I would imagine that DOJ is in the State Department's ear and in the Secretary of Defense's <laughs> ear because remember the Secretary of Defense has to sign yeah. off. By the, yeah. By yeah. the way, speaking of the State Department, did you see who resigned yesterday? I did not hear about anybody resigning. Who was it? Harold Coe. 
Okay, so I have to admit, didn't know he was in. Was ah, was senior he, advisor to the secretary? I think he was senior advisor to the secretary. Interesting. So, what do you make of of Harry? What do you make? He wrote about? he wrote a six page memo about why he was resigning. It's all about Title Forty Two and and oh, and, interesting. And, so and he, he's program. he's quitting and he's leaving in protest over the the use of Title Forty Two to remove with to to obviate the usual procedures. Yes, to remove people who cross there. Interesting. Well, um, that's very interesting. I hadn't yes. heard that. Thanks for sharing that. It's, I'll just say his memo is widely available online, and I would encourage folks to read it. It is quite a um, he, he tortured it on the way out the door. So no, he's it's not it's not a torture. No, but he does sort of he does call back to like our values and what are we fighting for? And you know, I mean, there are some pretty sharp criticisms of the Biden administration's immigration policy in the in the in the in oh there. for sure. I would say that there's there is a comparison to be made between sort of expectations versus what's happening on border issues with the Biden administration that reminds me of the expectations versus what happened on global war on terrorism issues and AMF type issues and our kinds of issues with the Obama administration. But I think it's much more intense politically. There's way bigger audience of people who are deeply invested in the, the border and migration issues as compared to the passionate, but ultimately comparatively small universe of of people who do our kinds of issues. Does that yep. sound right to you? Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So there's Alhila. We, we don't know what's going to happen and it's complex. Yep. Uh, um, so wh- while we're in the ballpark, should we quickly talk about Abu Zubaydah? Yeah. So describe what's on, what's before the court coming up tomorrow in, in Zubaydah. So it's very strange because there are two very different um, state secrets cases that the court's going to hear in the next month plus. Um, Abu Zubaydah is the first, Fazaga is the second. And Abu Zubaydah is really a much narrower, much more specific and technical case. Um, and it's scheduled for oral argument tomorrow. And the basic gist is that um, there was a request for discovery under 28 USC section 1782, which is basically assistance to a foreign proceeding um, arising out of efforts in Poland, Bobby, to investigate the role of Poland in the CIA's RDI program. Um, in the in the torture of Abu Zubaydah, in the potential liability of you know contractors, what Mitchell and Jessen um, in this program, and so there was discovery that was obtained, um, or that was sought to be obtained in the district court, and the government objected under state secrets grounds, and the Ninth Circuit basically held, you know, we don't think you've yet made the showing. This is a very preliminary stage. Like we don't think that the requests, you know, insofar as the question is like. Was it Poland? <laughs> uh, that cat's sort of out of the bag. Um, it's. I mean, I say all this because there are some pretty technical, pretty important pieces in this case about where the state secrets privilege comes from, about its scope, about you know what it sort of should give way to, um, and you know it's going to be an interesting argument to watch because, as you know, the court has not had. A case squarely touching on this, really, you know, I mean, since Tenet versus Doe, I guess is the last time the court and and that was a very unique case that has lots of different features from this one, and that was Absolutely. a very different court because that was you know 16 years ago. No, I must say, I, I almost I almost can't believe they're actually going to touch this again, and maybe in the end they won't. But uh, 
Many I mean, it was, I mean, it was. I mean, it was a DOJ petition, right? So, so, so it's interesting. So, it was the Trump administration. I mean, back to the Biden administration, right? In both this case and Fazaga, which is being argued next month, which we will also talk about, I think, at some length. It was a petitions from the Trump administration, but the Biden administration has largely, you know, embraced, with maybe a couple of marginal exceptions, Bobby, the arguments that the Trump administration made it at the cert stage. Well, and, and that didn't surprise me at all. It, it reminds me very much of how. Once the Bush administration, so the Bush administration uh, was was widely depicted in academia and elsewhere as as having sort of you know unearthed the state secrets privilege out of out of some abandoned box found in a back room and suddenly you know using it in novel ways. As you know, one of the one of the earlier things I ever wrote was sort of going into the details, not just of where did the privilege come from, but looking closely at how it was being used. And making the argument that it wasn't being used in novel ways, it was being used more often. But of course, that's a function at least as much, if not more, of the litigations that were the opportunities where one might or might not invoke it. Anyways, that was the position I took. Um, when the Obama administration came along, again, there were expectations in many corners that it was going to really roll back and change the approach uh that the Bush administration had taken to the privilege. It had a process under Eric Holder at the Justice Department that resulted in sort of a interagency policy agreement about how these privilege claims will be vetted before they're made in court in the future. And it was dressed up with a lot of bells and whistles, but functionally, I would argue it wasn't particularly different than what was going on before. It was it was better. It, it was a better process, more formal, but not likely to produce, you know, substantively uh, meaningfully different approaches and maybe some people agree with that. Maybe some people don't. But it just shows that when it comes to matters such as uh, protecting classified information from disclosure, you're going to get continuity across parties uh, very often. It's it's it shouldn't be that surprising that the Obama administration's approach wasn't that different from Bush's, or that Biden's ends up not being that different from Trump's. Um, and that's that's a tough pill to swallow in some contexts. But then again. So is the continued defense of the legality of detention at Guantanamo and the continued use of drone strikes and so forth. So just, just to make sure I get, I mean, because I, I realize that not everyone has been following this as carefully as we have. I mean, just to get the posture right. So the district court, Bobby, had dismissed the case and the Ninth Circuit had reversed. Um, right. So this is very interlocutory. Um, and one of the things that they're actually fighting over is whether Mitchell and Jessen can testify as to what they saw, did, and heard at the black sites without mentioning where the black sites were. Like, right, that, that like, are, are there ways, I mean, right, are there ways, even if some of the information the government's worried about is properly protected by the state secrets privilege, does it really warrant dismissal? Yeah. Right? Or is it too early to decide that because of the sort of interlocutory premature phase of the proceedings at which we're at? And I think you and I will probably agree on the application here, although no, I know we disagree on the general principle, at least at least at the margins. The general principle that's often contested in this setting is, should there even be such a thing as dismissal at the threshold on the theory right. that the state secrets eligible information is so central to the litigation that you just can't litigate the case? Right. right? Uh, and then the competing position is, yeah, don't ever dismiss the whole case, just Use it like a scalpel. Use the privilege like a scalpel, cutting out where necessary from documents, from testimony, and it's cumbersome, yes, and it may prove fatal in the end at summary judgment because it might mean that someone can't show a tribal issue effect on a material issue. But you got to do it the hard way, not the sweep it across the board way. And I think here's one, and so I think that you're you're more inclined to the 
you should generally always do it. The, what I'm describing is the scalpel way. I'm more open than you are, I think, to the idea that there are some times where it really does go to the essence of the case. And so threshold dismissals are permissible. But if I'm hearing your account right, it sounds like this is one where no, you ought to be able to do the scalpel approach. You ought to be able, if if all that's being claimed is, is that narrow thing, then you should be able to simply uh, redact that whenever said or prevent it from being said and let the other uh, information flow unless there's also a privilege claim as to the other information. So maybe we're on the same page about that. I mean, it'll be, I'll just say it'll be an interesting argument to listen to. Um, and, and, you know, we get to do that since they're streaming audio. So good job. Yeah, they're going to make us, uh, by, by the way, don't, don't you wish that when these things, they make the audio available, that there was just an easy way to do it at high speed. So you don't have to listen to it at the regular <laughs> speed. Oh, it's so painful. Yeah, all, all I have to say, so I was on a podcast, um, the Talking Feds podcast with Harry Lippman last week, and they do the thing where they edit out all of your pauses. Oh, yeah? How, and I hate, so much shorter. I hate listening to myself. Like I, my pauses are like natural, right? Like I hate, I hate, I sound like I'm literally on speed, even at one <laughs> X when you edit out all of my pauses. So when I, I rarely go back and listen to us, but when I do, yeah. it's the same way I listen to all the air stuff as close to two X as I can. And it, I always feel like, God, we, we sound like we're just so quick and like, we're not, we're not so quick. <laughs> it's just playing it fast. And we definitely have our ums and pauses, and that's all part what? of the low production values that we pay for. All right. Um, okay. Uh, should we? Can I tell also that it's 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 kind of weird, right? That like I mean, I'm just I'm looking at the government's reply brief again, and it's kind of weird that like literally the first heading in the reply brief is respondents seek discovery that would confirm or deny whether a CIA detention facility existed in Poland, like. <laughs> <laughs> what do you expect him to say, right? That's that's um, the issue. I mean, so so um, the acting solicitor general himself, Brian Fletcher, is arguing on behalf of the government, um, and David Klein, who I believe is at Pillsbury Winthrop in D.C., um, is arguing on behalf of Abu Zubaydah. So that should be a good one. That's going to be a yeah. You know, I'm, I'm yes, I'm actually really looking forward to the, to hearing this argument. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have a post game on that one, just like we did for Al Hila in, um, in in our next episode in December. <laughs> in 2022 come on um yeah, who knows maybe we'll find more time to do this by the way it's now three nothing red Sox through three i saw that schwarber schwarber yeah. went deep um i didn't realize he knew how to hit homers against teams not named the mets did you see i, th- I think they pulled cole i think garrett cole's out wow that is that's not what you expect but you can't really uh take chances here i guess I mean, it's a, it's, it's winner go home. I and, mean, you know, so for the Yankees and Red Sox, I mean, they finished with the same record. That's fine. The weird part is tomorrow when the Dodgers, who finished 16 games ahead of the Cardinals, are in the same winner go home position. How many straight games did the Cardinals ultimately win there? Is it 17? 17 and 19 out of 20. Oh, man. But, so... but, but Bobby, the Dodgers finished seven. I mean, here's what's crazy the Dodgers were 17 and five down the stretch. The Giants were eighteen and three down the stretch, and like the Cardinals were nineteen and one. Like, I mean, these are right. like they you know, don't actually. You know, I, I, there has been a lot of lazy reporting, like, well, so the Cardinals include the team to be. They're the hot teams. Like, they're those teams are all red hot. There's not a really a big difference there. Um, Although you have to feel like all the pressures on the Dodgers in that game, like the Cardinals, no one expected to lose. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as as someone who has been victimized by the nothing to lose Cardinals in prior <laughs> playoff series, you I, know, I hear you. I hear you. It's, it's a dangerous position for the Dodgers to be in. I'll just say that. More baseball in a moment. Let's yes. let's check in with the article by Zach Dorfman, Sean yes. Naylor, and Michael Isikoff. 
this was this was pretty explosive. I mean, here here's the headline on the 26th: kidnapping, assassination, and a London shootout inside the CIA's secret war plans against WikiLeaks. Our, our preview of the Bond movie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, uh, there's there's a joke to be made about Assange kind of looking the part of the the Bond villain, but I, I realize that some people would say, no, no, he's the hero. Mm, I don't know about that. Um, I think people tend to forget what the Mueller investigation documented pretty well about uh, just the, the nature of, of Assange's, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, role in in helping you know Guccifer 2.0, the Russians, accomplish what they were trying to accomplish. In any event, um, so there's there's so many fascinating national security law issues packed into this account that you could, for a class like that, you could just give the article and say, all right, there's a gigantic issue spotter. Uh, you know, here's Use 5,000 words, three hours, spot the issues and analyze them. This is, like, this, it, is like, this is like my Fed courts exam next semester. Give them SB8. How would you challenge <laughs> yeah, exactly. this law? Go. Like, just say, like, you tell us what to do. Seriously. Uh, so let's try to let's do um, at, let's first try to tease out some of the distinct threads. Uh, much of the attention, of course, not surprisingly, circulates around the reporting that uh, Director, then CIA Director Pompeo, at least was suggesting. Hey, can we consider using lethal force? So let's just stop there on that one. First, noting that the lawyers, we are told, said no, no, we may not do that, and that's the end of that. But nonetheless, it. it if it gets asked about, if it's true that the, the director was really thinking about this, it's worth pausing to unpack why was it the lawyers all said, no, no, you cannot do that. And uh, the, the reasons are manifold. Uh, but one is this would be, in, in my opinion, a textbook case of what is forbidden by the prohibition on assassination in Executive Order 12333, going back to the lessons of the 1970s. And though there are all sorts of debates about what the boundaries and parameters are, including debates about why the use of lethal force in self-defense against, say, a terrorism target is not in the assassination category. There are answers to these questions that administrations of both parties and the executive branch have long since held to. And you've never seen either party's administrations uh, suggesting that, no, in fact, assassination is okay. Well, what is assassination in this paradigm case? Um, as the Church Committee report of the uh, of the 1970s documented with reference to some previously very secret uh, black ops by CIA. This is the intentional use of lethal force to advance foreign policy objectives in contrast to using it in the context of armed conflict, which is generally agreed to be different. And then as the administration basically from, I'd say, the early 80s onward, uh, it's been the position that also where there is someone who has, has or is imminently going to use lethal force themselves against Americans, and this is necessary to save lives, no one can claim that anything like that is true for Assange. Whatever else is true about his, uh, his and his organization's hostility to the United States, there's no pathway where this, is in, this would have been anything other than an assassination if it really were seriously attempted to kill him. Which is why the lawyers, I think, both the Trump administration White House lawyers and no doubt the CIA general counsel's office as well, all said, no, 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 you can't do this. Does that sound right to you? 
who knows? I mean, like, like you know, sure. I don't, I, but do you agree that this would be a textbook case of the forbidden category of assassination? 150%, yes. <laughs> so, and that's just the beginning and, and, and of the many say, reasons and, and, why. Yeah. But wait, and, and just, to, I mean, you know, I mean, you already, you already basically alluded to this, but like not with no plausible argument for like the Hayes Parks exception. No, no, yeah. The Hayes, so Hayes Parks, the, uh, who passed away not that long ago, so rest in peace, Hayes Parks, um, long time, the, the dean of the law of armed conflict uh, within DOD uh, in the, I believe it was 81, 82, 83, sometime in that range, wrote a memorandum rest on behalf, I think it was for the, maybe for Army, maybe for DOD, in any event, an executive branch internal legal analysis wrestling with this question of, okay, wait a minute, if assassination is forbidden, but there are all kinds of ways, of course, in which the military uses lethal force, including where you know who your target is, um, where, where's the line? And, and the exception to which you're referring, Steve, I think uh, is the exception that I mentioned a moment ago, where in addition to it being armed conflict, you may have non-armed conflict situations where if it's otherwise appropriate to be using force and you know who it is, if it is, as I described, a situation in which the person you're targeting is committing or has committed an act of violence that cost American lives or is imminently going to do so again, that's a national self-defense scenario, not a right. we're pursuing foreign policy right. objectives right. scenario. So Assange isn't, well, I guess what we're both saying is this isn't a hard case. This is a super easy case. And that's why if this really was considered, that's why it seems, according to the reporting, to have been vigorously shot down. Um, maybe not the right phrase for that. Um, <laughs> <all right. laughs> uh, vigorously shot down may have been the name of the operational proposal. I don't know. So then there's the stuff that's more serious and more interesting. Actually, not more serious. Less serious. Less serious. But super interesting. And that's the whole wrestling match around that followed after there was intel that the Russians may have been contemplating their own covert action activity to sneak Assange or manage to get Assange out of the Ecuadorian embassy and onto a plane bound for Moscow. And the US and the UK were collaborating over gaming out the endless complexities of what happens if we try to stop this, we try to physically stop the car. Maybe we ram into the car. Maybe a, maybe a helicopter has to hover over the jet. All these sorts of things but what becomes legally interesting about that, since all that was going to be done collaboratively with the Brits, it's not like a UN charter um, sovereignty issue. It, uh, what's interesting is the domestic determination, domestic law determination, that all the things that we're contemplating, including maybe trying to snatch Assange ourselves so we could render him back if the Brits were willing to allow us to do this, um, is that it may or may not have counted as a covert action for purposes of Title 50, meaning that perhaps it would be an activity that otherwise looks, walks, and talks like covered action and therefore ought to be supported by a, a presidential finding. And that finding has to go through the usual White House procedures in which there is a degree of vetting, including from outside the CIA, and then notified to and reported to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. And we're told in the reporting that a determination was made that Actually, no, we're, we're in one of those zones where the statutory definition of covert action doesn't reach. Now, you and I have every now and then on the show talked about the traditional military activities exception to the definition of covert action. That is something that gets lots of attention. I've written about that loads. What people aren't nearly as often talking about is the idea of counterintelligence activity 
exceptions. Right. And and what we're told here is that look, all of this when you're talking about what might be done vis-a-vis foiling the Russian operation, that's definitely counter to the intelligence activities of whether it was going to be SVR, GRU, whoever it was going to be. But then the story goes in a wild, not a wild direction and not an entirely surprising direction, but a controversial direction, talking about something that came up a bunch when, including when Pompeo was here at UT, giving a talk at one of our events. In fact, uh, in, uh, in Skullduggery, the podcast these same reporters do, they reference that. Thank you for mentioning UT that way. Uh, Pompeo talked about how you can have non-state actors in relevant categories, including uh, hostile intelligence services. And so we're told that WikiLeaks was formally categorized as a hostile non-state foreign intelligence service. And that's just a, a really fascinating general topic, regardless of what it meant for Assange's situation. It's just a really interesting general topic. And it raises the possibility that's talked about in the reporting that, of course, over time, all sorts of questions have arisen about what are the boundary lines for what counts as a counterintelligence activity? And can a non-state entity like WikiLeaks, assuming we're not attributing its actions as a cat's paw for the Russians and assuming it's really independent, um, when can it become part of this sort of analysis? And, uh, you know, we don't know because this, this is the sort of thing that gets determined internal to the agency and in the National Security Council uh, legal advisor's office and in the, the National Security Law Group's vettings. But this is a little glimpse behind the curtain to think about that. And I won't be surprised if in the months ahead, we have a lot of journalists who are starting to pull on those threads to find out, is there anything interesting there? Is there anything controversial there? Is this one of those areas where the public, including people like us, might be very surprised to find out the scope of how the authority has been interpreted? You can bet the House and Senate Intelligence Committees will be paying attention because at least some of the members there will be worried that what's going on is Stuff that's pretty serious covert action, but formally doesn't have to be reported if you embrace yep. these interpretations. That's right. that's right. Yeah. All right. What else have we got? I know we could go on and on and on. <laughs> we haven't done this in a while, but <laughs> uh, I promised um, the National Security Division roundup, so I got to at least mention two really significant cases. Uh, one of them that could probably be a whole show unto it's, itself is uh, uh, Muhammad Khalifa who's a Canadian citizen, born born in Saudi Arabia, but he's a Canadian citizen. And he is someone that joined the Islamic State during its heyday, served as an English language propagandist, pretty prominent one, sort of shades of Al-Awlaki, which is significant uh, in that respect, but also participated in a combat operation at least once, if not more times. And it, it turns out, and I think there had actually been some prior news about this because he's been giving interviews while in custody in Syria. Uh, he was captured by SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, and he's one of these uh, Islamic State foreign fighters who's been in SDF custody. Uh, we do know from the public record that at one point FBI got in there to ask him questions. At some point, there's been Canadian coverage about whether and under what circumstances he'll be uh, extradited or rendered back to Canada to face charges. That's not what happened. He's in uh, the Eastern District of Virginia, where he's facing uh, conspiracy to provide material support charges and uh, of a particular serious variety, the kind where the support is associated with or related to causing having caused death, which amps up to life sentence potential. So this isn't a 20-year material support uh, case. This is a life sentence material support case. 
Uh, and since he uh, was foolish enough to talk to reporters to some extent about some of the things he did, um, you know, this is one that I suspect is going to be a plea agreement at some point for a very long term of years. Uh, but I don't think this guy's ever going to walk free. So there's that case. But but hey, what's partly what's interesting here is just seeing the yet another example of where the civilian criminal justice system is going to handle a really serious terrorism case just fine and very reliably. Who knew? Who knew? We have the we have the technology. <laughs> yeah, you beat me to the punch. No, 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 no. <laughs> we have the technology. Um, a lot of our listeners are not going to know what we're saying there. No. And then, of course, uh, we should note that it appears a deal has been struck and uh, the United States basically has effectively dropped its charges against the CFO of Huawei, who'd been held by the Canadians at considerable cost to Canada pending our extradition request. China responded with kidnap diplomacy, hostage diplomacy. They kidnapped and, and bogusly charged and bogusly pursued two Canadian citizens on trumped up espionage charges as a counterweight. And it has all the hallmarks of a deal being struck to de-escalate the situation and just put this behind us. Um, and so, yeah, so that happened. What a, what a train wreck that turned out to be, but most especially for the, for the, the individuals, the Canadian guys that have been detained in China as the counterbalance here and for their, the suffering they went through and the suffering of their friends and family. So what a shame that whole deal was. Yep. But, you know, we, we're being too serious, Steve. I think we got to get frivolous. Let's do it's it. Too, it's been too long. Um, well, I don't know. What can I tell you? Uh, tell me what you thought of the Game of Thrones prequel trailer, if anything. House of House of Dragons. Dragons, dragon, whatever it is. So I guess I sort I mean, don't we kind of know what's going to happen? Like, it was <laughs> like, like, I, do, do you remember David Letterman's famous um, um, bit about Titanic when, when Titanic came out? He's like, spoiler alert. So, so he does this whole thing. Like, like, apparently this is like the number one movie in the country and everyone is like obsessed with this movie. And, and, and I just, I, I want to know, like, do you not know how it ends? <laughs> like, <laughs> but you don't know it was it uh it the was ship Jack sinks and, yeah but but that the ship sinks but that's just the context you don't know about the romance you don't know jack if and rose. is is are jack and rose both gonna make it it's pretty obvious jack's not gonna make it too i guess <laughs> you don't know is is there any doubt but that jack is not gonna make it Here, here's the thing we talked about this before why don't they take turns at least give Jack like kind of a chance to live. It's like just like a given in their relationship that she gets to stay out of the water and he'll just sit there and die, like without even a chance of maybe if we take turns we'll make it to a robot. Bobby, we've jumped the shark. We are discussing. We are we, we are seriously discussing <laughs> plot plot holes in Titanic. Oh, fair enough. Um, I'll talk about something that does not have plot holes, or at least none that are worthy of criticizing, because th- this whole series was so good. Um, so there's a book recommendation for y'all, and we're on the Game of Thrones theme. So Game of Thrones famously was depicted early on as an example of the turn in, in fantasy writing towards hard fantasy writing, where the there's a lot more blood and guts, there's a little more sex, or maybe a lot more, a lot more cussing. It just kind of seems grittier and earthier. It's not it's not a bunch of like cutesy hobbits or what have you. I mean, not just uh, sex, but rape, right? I mean, and so one, uh, I would say uh, probably like in, in my mind the premiere. Uh, master of the craft now is Joe Abercrombie. 
Joe Abercrombie is unbelievable. He's a Brit who's written a, a couple of series, all mostly I think, set in this this one particular world. Every every bit of it's awesome. But he's just completed uh, his. He's recently this month released the third and concluding volume of the latest trilogy. This book's Wisdom of Crowds. But you, you got to read, you know, the whole series. The others are uh, the Trouble with Peace and a Little Hatred. It, the series is called The Age of Madness. It's it's so good in part because what he's done here is that he's preserved. There's some little elements of magic, but and but mostly it's politics. And set in a situation in which some real modern technologies are beginning to be developed by these societies, including technologies of finance and investment, but but some some mastery of steam and some novelties. The whole thing kind of captures the idea of what if you had a fantasy world, a Game of Thrones type situation, but you begin injecting sort of the 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 British technological developments from about 1620 through maybe. 1720 and kind of throw that into the mix and why not get a little labor agitation and labor organizing into the mix and make that a big part of the politics so instead of you know the game of houses amongst just the nobles uh, some of the biggest players are, are decidedly in it for the class warfare it's so good but but best of all is to uh get the audible version and in my opinion you got to buy the hard copy but if you have the funds to do it also listen to the audible version because the guy who reads it is just really brings it to life. And so I guess you could say I'm enthusiastically recommending Joe Abercrombie here, here. Um, have you, have you taken a peek at the foundation uh, um, uh, uh, reboot um, on Apple TV? Not yet. I was pondering whether I need to go. Cause I mean, I was, I was a teenager when I read the foundation books. So do I need to go back and reread that so that I can, properly assess the tv series what do you think i don't know i, I don't know i mean I've, I've heard so i haven't had time i mean i just i have like i don't want to i want to actually like just like i still haven't watched the last season of the expanse like i really i need yeah. i need to be able to actually process these things as opposed to just like it's 10 o'clock i'm exhausted let me watch this while i fall asleep and um, yeah. but but the things i've heard about foundation are not especially optimistic Oh, yeah, that's too bad. It makes me worried about some other like I'm very excited about the upcoming Wheel of Time adaptation. And as I think I've mentioned on the show a month ago, I'm I'm plowing my way back through those books which are holding up much better than I remembered. Um speaking of the Expanse, uh, I believe they've announced maybe even a release date for the new book. Is that uh, right? Yeah. Uh Leviathan Falls is projected for November 16th. That's a big deal. So, so uh, I, you know, I'm waiting for the last book in Orson Scott Card's um, Ender Shadow series, and the, the 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 release date keeps getting pushed back. Now I think that's also November 16th. Oh, interesting. Well, that's going to be a banner day. Um, so, uh, I never read past Ender's Game. Do you think I need to get back to work? Oh, Bobby. Look, there, look there's a lot of books. <laughs> so there, I mean, there's so so Ender's Game has its own universe that follows, right? But then there's the Ender Shadow. I mean, even if you don't read any of the sequels to Ender's Game, like Ender's Shadow is cool. It's Ender's Game told from Bean's perspective. Really? Oh, yes. that's super cool. Okay, so I got to go back and watch Ender's Game. No, no, don't yeah. watch it. Just read it. Don't watch it. The I movie know, I, I'm sorry. I misspoke. I was no. not going to watch anything. Yes. No. Um, as you know, I rarely watch anything. Uh, let's see. What else? I feel like I'm omitting something else. Something in the same genre of things we've been watching or reading. 
We're going to try to do James Bond. Yep. Um, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. All right. We should probably let the audience go. I was going to say, like, <laughs> our standard one hour and seven minute mark. Awkward pause. Awkward pause. Well, we're just um, excited to be back on. And y'all, we, we, we missed asynchronously being with all of y'all. Seriously. Um, all right. Well, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, over under three weeks till our next episode, Bobby. Under. <laughs> you under. heard it here first, everybody. Stay safe out there. <laughs> Adios.